Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Let's resume our Hebrews study today by turning to the fifth chapter. And I want to read the first ten verses of Hebrews chapter 5. Our subject for the morning is our sympathetic high priest. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We're in this section of the Hebrew letter that focuses on the theme of Christ's superiority to Aaron. We've already studied the great truth that Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Moses. Now we're in the section, in fact, this is the dominant section of the letter. It takes us from chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 10, verse 18. It's the main theme developed in the Hebrew letter, and it speaks of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, his superiority to Aaron. Now, the three mediatorial offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king, the priesthood is the most ancient and the most basic. That is, before God called prophets, and before he appointed kings to rule over the people, Priests were active, offering sacrifices and interceding for the people. And when we come to the book of Hebrews, the question behind this particular section, the dominant section again of the book, is how is Jesus qualified to be our priest? Seeing that he is not a descendant of the tribe of Levi, if he is to be a priest but he's not from the right family, how can he meet the qualifications? And this passage that I've read in your hearing this morning outlines our Lord's qualifications for the priesthood in three particulars. First of all, he shares our human weakness. Secondly, he is divinely called and ordained. And thirdly, he is specially trained in the school of experience. Now, we've already talked about Christ as our priest. Previously, we looked at verses 14 to 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And then verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But you may notice that in those two messages, we really said very little, if anything, about the 15th verse in chapter 4. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That verse teaches us that our high priest shares our human weaknesses. He can sympathize with us. And that's the thought developed in the first three verses of chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. An angel could not be a high priest because he had no experience in human weakness and frailty. I'm sure each one of us here this morning feels to be frail and vulnerable and weak. If you're honest with yourself and honest before God, no doubt you would confess today, as I will freely, that I am not adequate in and of myself to be a Christian. In fact, I'm not adequate to be anything. I'm not adequate to be a good husband, to be a good father, to be a good preacher, to be a loyal citizen of a our country. I'm not adequate. I don't have the resource. In fact, my friends, it doesn't take much to get me discouraged. Can you identify with that? We easily lose heart, don't we? We have a few financial problems, a few health problems. We have some relational stresses and difficulties. And before you know it, we feel to be overwhelmed with the burdens of life. I wonder if there's anyone here today who feels very weak, who feels that you need help. Maybe you're sliding down the slippery slope into the slough of despond. Perhaps you're here today saying, Brother Mike, somebody please help me. I'm sinking. I'm like Peter in the water. Lord, save. I perish. And you feel that the billows of trial and affliction are rolling over your soul. Well, I'm telling you, dear friends, if someone is going to represent me before God, I want someone who can identify with that experience, don't you? You know, one of the complaints that I have and many people have against many of our political leaders is that they don't have any experience in the very things on which they pass laws and which they legislate. You know, someone who's been a bureaucrat his or her entire life, who's never been in the public sector, Let's say uh, someone who's making medical decisions, but he's never treated any patients, but he's been in politics his entire life. You say, well, he's degreed, he's credentialed, but does he have real life experience? That's what I want to know. Someone who is handling the economy and making decisions that affect the economy, but he's never owned a business or worked in the service industry, you know, you want somebody who knows what it is, don't you? who represents you, somebody who knows what it is, who's been there and done that. Well, my beloved, may I say, we have a high priest who shares our infirmities. And that's one of the qualifications for the Old Testament priesthood. Every high priest taken from among men. When a high priest was chosen, he was chosen from the people. He was taken from among men and ordained for men on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. So the priest represented the people to God. Now I've said in previous messages, we don't have priests in our churches, our Baptist churches. 
And some professing Christians and other world religions think that's strange today because we don't have any special bells and whistles and ceremonies, you know. It's very simple, isn't it? What do we do when we get together for worship? We sing. We sing congregationally, a cappella. That is, the word a cappella means as in church. We have prayer. And then we preach and teach the word of God. You see, Brother Goins, where are the pictures? And where are the special ceremonies? Where is the smoke and the pomp and the circumstance and the sacrifices that you make? Where is your priest? Well, we do have a priest, but he's not any earthly man, but he is the great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, as we read in the 14th verse. And he has passed into the heavens. Just like the Old Testament high priest passed behind the veil into the Holy of Holies once per year, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, has now gone behind the veil. We can't see him with our eyes, but yet he has passed into the very presence of God, into heaven itself. One of the important things in interpreting the book of Hebrews is to understand That all of these ceremonies that are outlined in the Old Testament are types and shadows of the reality. Now, of course, a shadow is not the real thing. You can't pick apples off of the shadow of an apple tree. But if you'll follow the shadow, it will lead you to the reality. And the Old Testament is full of shadows, full of figures and pictures. But if you'll follow those shadows, my friends, they represent something that has substance to it. And all of these shadows, including the imagery of the high priest going to offer sacrifices for the people to God, all of these shadows point to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is why we don't have the pomp and circumstance of Old Testament worship as a rule anymore, because Jesus Christ has lived up to it all. He's met the standard. You know, once the reality is here, you don't need the shadow anymore. And the book of Hebrews teaches us that Christ has fulfilled the law. Now I say that because there are so many religions today who still say that you have to keep the law in order to be saved from your sins. And I'm telling you that Jesus kept the law in our place and therefore the law has been abrogated. It's been fulfilled and it's no longer relevant as an order of worship and service for you and me. And the book of Hebrews reminds us we still have a priest But he's not, my friends, any mere man. He's the Son of God, but yet he shares in human experience. He shares our trials and our weaknesses. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you know the priest offered sacrifices, that is, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the wave offering. He also offered gifts. That is, when someone had been blessed by God and they wanted to express their gratitude of their own free will in the Old Testament, they would often bring over and above what was required a free will offering, a thanksgiving offering. And the high priest would receive that gift and offer it as well to God. The fact is, my beloved, God is so holy and man is so sinful that we could never approach God unless we had a mediator, someone to go between us. And that's the function of this Old Testament office, is to represent men to God. And what I'm saying this morning, my beloved, is that our high priest is not 
distinct and remote from us, but he shares in our humanity. You know, the Old Testament priest had to share in the nature of the people he represented. God took one of Levi's sons and made him a high priest, and he knew what it was to live human life because he shared humanity with his fellow Israelites. Exodus 28 verse 1 says, Take thou unto thee, telling Moses, Aaron thy brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel. Notice the thought. Every high priest is taken from among men. So you take Aaron from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Even Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And then he goes on to tell him how that you're to make holy garments for Aaron, and you're to sanctify him, you're to fit him to function in this role. So God says that the priest must share in humanity. And in our text this morning, Jesus Christ shares our humanity. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Somebody said that the best way to interpret Hebrews 4.15 is to knock the knots out of that verse. You know, two negatives make a positive. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched. Let's take the knots out of it and put it in positive terms. For we have a high priest which can be touched. My friends, we have a priest today who, because he's been there, because he shares our human nature, he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In fact, our text says in chapter 5, verse 2, he should be one who can have compassion on the ignorant. I like that word compassion, or the word sympathy, which is a synonym. You ever noticed the etymology of the word sympathy? Pathos, the root, means emotion, feeling. And the prefix sim means to gather with. That is, someone who has sympathy is someone who can feel with, who has emotion with another person. Compassion, the etymology of that word is similar. Passion or pathos, again, means to feel, to experience. And the prefix com, again, speaks of together. Jesus Christ is the sympathizing Jesus. We sing a song like that, don't we? The great physician now is near the what? Sympathizing Jesus. Now I have to tell you that there's not a lot of sympathy in the world around us today. Even though we share human experience with others, many people's consciences have become so seared that they no longer feel any compassion when they see someone else hurting. I dare say that the most useful people are people who can see someone else suffering and can identify with that suffering. What I'm saying is Jesus isn't divorced from you and me. He's not remote. He's not disconnected. He's not so far away. Even though he is passed into the heavens, yet, my friends, he still knows what it is to share human experience, to suffer, to be afflicted. He has compassion for our human frailties and weaknesses. In every respect, the verse says, yet without sin. But even in that, though he never sinned himself, did you know he bore the wrath of God for our sins and he felt the pressure in his soul. He felt the agony. He felt the guilt. Even though he had himself committed no sins, yet he was made to be sin for us. And he felt the anger of God towards sin in his own body on the tree. 
And therefore, because he's been through everything that you and I experience in this life, we have one in heaven. Our man in heaven is able to identify with you and me when our hearts are heavy. And I find that tremendously encouraging this morning. Don't you? Because I struggle. Heard a story that Elder Harold Hunt told about a little boy who walked by a pet shop one day and saw a sign in the window, puppies for sale. And the little fellow went in and he began to look at the little puppies. And he came back to the store owner and he said, uh, I found a dog that I want. And the man said, well, this is how much that dog costs. And the boy said, well, I don't have any money. And the man said, well, you better make some real fast or find a way to get some if you want to buy that dog because they're going fast. And the little boy went out and he raked leaves and he mowed yards and he did errands for neighbors and he gathered his nickels and dimes together and finally he had enough to go back in and to purchase his dog. And many of the dogs were gone, but he went back and sure enough, the one that he had picked out was still there. And the little fella picked up the dog and took him to the store owner and the man said, son, you don't want that dog. That's the scrawniest and the weakest little dog of the litter. It's the runt of the litter. And he said, if you'll notice, the little dog can't walk. The little dog has some anatomical problem. It's crippled. And the little boy said, yes, this is the dog that I want. And the man said, I don't know why. He said, he will never be able to play fetch. He'll never be able to run with you and to play with you. He's crippled. This dog is of no use. The little fellow said, well, I want him anyway. And he paid his money. And as the little boy walked out with his dog, the man noticed that the little fellow who had been hidden prior to that time behind the counter was walking with braces on his legs. He himself knew what it was to be crippled. The word infirmity in our text, he himself is compassed with infirmity, means weakness. You saw it in verse 15, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity, weakness. My friends, may I say Jesus Christ, because he's been there, knows what it is in his human nature to share our experience. I love the prophecy in Isaiah 42. It's repeated in Matthew chapter 12 when it speaks of the Messiah in these terms, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. You may have seen reeds growing by a lake or a pond You know, there's tall, slender, fragile kinds of plants of reed. Experienced shepherds back in the day could take one of those reeds and cut it and shape it to where they could play a tune like a flute. But a bruised reed, that is one on which a cow has stepped and turned it over and it's now still alive, but yet it's crippled. It's not good for much is really worth nothing but to be cast aside. I mean, you can't make anything out of a bruised reed. But when it speaks of the Messiah, it says a bruised reed, he will not break. He will not snap it across his knee and throw it aside. But he will, if you please, nurse it back to health and shape it and carve it. And he can play beautiful music even on those whose lives are frail and fragile and bruised. You ever feel that you've been bruised by the trials of your life? Maybe some of you have lost children, perhaps you've lost a mate, perhaps you've bid farewell to loving parents, 
Maybe you know what it is to be lonely or you have struggled with depression or anxiety and fear. Perhaps somebody here has had broken relationships and you say, Preacher, I just don't think that I can go on. I feel to be bruised and mangled. I've been beaten up by the world. The world will do that to you, won't it? Other people have mistreated you. You've lost jobs. You've had financial reversals. You've had disappointments. Maybe you've lost a home in a fire. Or perhaps your parents abdicated their responsibilities and you grew up basically having to raise yourself. And you say, preacher, I just don't know how that I can cope with life. May I say that you have one in heaven who understands. Now, it's not easy to find a listening ear and uh, an empathetic heart in the world around us. In fact, dear friends, most people are so busy this world operates at a breakneck pace, and you say, I just can't find anybody who seems to care. There's one in heaven who cares, and he can be touched with the feeling of your weaknesses. He can be touched. There's an old telephone company that had as its advertising campaign motto for a while, reach out and touch someone. You say, well, I don't have a connection to heaven. How can I call on him? Well, my friends, through prayer, you can go to the Father and Jesus Christ, your great high priest, will represent you before God and he knows what it is to be where you are. I'm not saying that he has committed the sins that we have, again. I'm not saying that Jesus has ever had thoughts of ill will or malice or that he's ever been self-absorbed or that he's ever worshipped in idolatry or that Jesus has ever broken his vows and his promises. I'm not saying Jesus was a sinner. But again, your sins and my sins were charged against him and he bore the penalty of those and felt the pressure and the pain of those. The guilt of that on the cross. And so when you come to him and say, Lord, I've sinned. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know, I'm so glad that we don't have a perfectionistic faith. That, hey, look at me, I've got everything on the ball. You know, there are some religious groups where the idea is that if you want to be a part of us, you have to be perfect. And I could never join those groups because the fact is I can't measure up. I'm telling you, dear friends, we have a gospel for sinners. We have good news for the hurting. When Jesus came preaching, he says in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus came ministering to the weak and the lowly, the poor, weak, and worthless. By the grace of God, I can count myself in that number this morning. For my life is a bruised reed. My life is a smoking flax. Now, where there's smoke, there's the potential for fire, but... The fact that the wick is smoking indicates that it might quickly be extinguished. You know, if it was a blazing bonfire, you would say that it's going to be hard to put that fire out. But when it's smoking, it doesn't take much to cut off the oxygen supply and to extinguish the smoke. And sometimes I feel that I'm just smoking. <laughs> you know, what I mean is I try to preach, but I feel like it's, I just can't quite get there. I, I want to serve my Lord to the best of my ability, but I feel, my friends, that I'm in kindergarten. And I'm just not able to perform and function at the level that he deserves. You ever feel like that? 
Does your voice ever crack while you're singing? Does your mind ever wander while you're praying? Do you ever forget to read the scriptures? Do you ever feel that you have failed in almost every respect in your life? I'm telling you, dear friends, we have a sympathizing Jesus who has compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. I'm so glad we have a gospel for sinners, not for the perfect and self-righteous people. Again, I couldn't identify with that kind of gospel. I'm the little boy with braces on his legs, and I'm thankful to have one who knows, who has compassion on sufferers. Now, even during his personal ministry, our Lord Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. You know, if there was ever anybody who had the right to say, I'm too busy to notice the peasants around me. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, certainly had a mission that demanded his focus and didn't have time for the lower classes of society. But interestingly, throughout his ministry, as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find Jesus stopping for a blind man outside the city of Jericho. You find Jesus stopping to heal a woman who'd had an issue of blood for 12 years. You find Jesus going out of his way to minister to a widow woman who's lost her only son in the city of Nain. You find Jesus finding a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years in John chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda. But this man had nobody to help him into the water. And he said, when the waters are stirred, someone else always gets in before me. And yet Jesus had compassion on him. As a shepherd would have compassion on a little lamb that was lame. And he said, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately He received strength and he was able to walk. He was healed. Yes, my friends, Jesus' ministry was one of ongoing sympathy for sufferers. And our great high priest in heaven today, my beloved, knows what it is to be tempted and tried. Our text says he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Did you know the humanity of Jesus was real? It was not a masquerade. It was not just a smokescreen. He was truly human. And consequently, his temptations were real temptations. His entire life was one of testing and trial. I like Luke 22, 28, when he says to his disciples shortly before he goes to the cross, you are those who have continued with me in my temptations. How does he categorize his life? A life of temptation or trial. Testing. I think of the temptation he endured recorded in Matthew chapter 4 when he fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and at the conclusion of that time when he was hungry, Satan came to him and tempted him just like the serpent had tempted our first parent Adam in the Garden of Eden. So the devil accosted the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the wilderness He tempted him with self-concern. If thou be the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. You're hungry? Make yourself something to eat. You can do it. If you're God, you can perform a miracle. He's tempting him to be selfish. That's one of the temptations, the categories that you and I face in life. You know, whenever you're tempted to sin or I'm tempted to sin, sometimes it is this temptation to think about old number one, a temptation to be self-centered and self-concerned. Then he tempted him with Popularity. My, that's a temptation many people face. If you're the son of God, he says, 
cast yourself down to the ground. The angels will take care of you. God's promised that, and Jesus says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He means that if you perform a miracle, if you take a swan dive from the pinnacle of the temple, and God saves you and delivers you, then you will be popular. He's tempting him with popularity. My, many people today are tempted in that way. Then he tempts him with the ambition for power. If you'll fall down and worship me, the devil says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. You want political power? All you've got to do is just compromise at this one little area and I will give you prestige and power and influence. You can achieve the crown without the cross by just falling down to worship me. What a temptation that was. But in every case, you know what Jesus did? He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He quoted from the word of God, the book of Deuteronomy. He wielded the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, in order to fend off the temptations of the evil one not only was he tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4 but in Matthew 16 Peter came to him and Peter said Lord far be it from you that you should go to the cross and Jesus recognizes the same diabolical spirit in Peter's words that he had endured at the hands of the devil in the wilderness and he says get thee behind me Satan for thou savest not the things of God but the things of men you're thinking like People think instead of like God thinks. And by the way, that's the challenge each of us faces, isn't it? That we're so bombarded with human ideas and it's easy to forget to think biblically. We think like the world around us. Our minds are ensnared by the secular worldview that is popular around us. But Jesus says we need to savor the things of God. Peter, when he says, Lord, you, you don't need to talk like that, that you're going to the cross Jesus is feeling the temptation to abandon his mission and avoid the shame and the scandal of the cross, the temptation to quit. You ever been tempted to think about yourself? You ever felt the temptation to be popular? You ever wanted to be powerful and to have influence over others? Have you ever felt the temptation to quit? You see, this is human experience I'm describing, right? And Jesus experienced it. He's gone through it before us. Matthew 27, he even felt the sting of ridicule as he hung in agony on the cross. They said to him, if you can rebuild this temple in three days, then bring yourself down from the cross. If thou be the son of God, save thyself and us. And the others ridiculed and mocked him. And they said he saved others, but himself he cannot save commentator Peter Lombard says a man who has had no experience of affliction and who has not endured anything in his own senses cannot possibly know the affliction of the afflicted but Christ knows it not just because as God he knows all things but because as man he has endured the same things as we endure my beloved our Lord Jesus Christ can be touched with the feeling of your and my infirmities today because he has been tempted and tried and tested in every category. Just as we are, he's been where you live right now. Yet without sin, he never failed the test. And therefore, he, like the high priest, meets the qualification. He can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, the wayward. Sometimes my feet stray from the path. Sometimes I wander, but 
Jesus understands. He said, preacher, no, if you, if you mess up once, I mean, we'll give you two chances, but the second time, two strikes, you're out. I'm so glad the Lord doesn't operate by that standard. In fact, my friends, I have wandered from the path. Instead of my life being a straight line, it seems that it is like the old Etch-a-Sketch lines. I mean, I'm all over the map, aren't you? I'm like the nervous person who sees the big buck on the first day of hunting season, and they have buck fever. Have you ever had that? And your rifle, your firearm is all over the map, and you say, okay, next time I make a pass to the left, I'm going to pull the trigger, and hopefully I'll hit the bullseye, but you seldom do, you know, because uh, you're all over the map. My beloved, Jesus Christ understands that we are but dust. He knows our frame, and he has compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for he himself is compassed with weakness. He knows what it is to hunger, for he's been there. He knows what it is to thirst, for he said, I thirst on the cross. He knows what it is to be fatigued and weary, for we find him sleeping in the hull of the ship on the Sea of Galilee, and we find him sitting on Jacob's well because he was weary with his journey. He knows what it is to be lonely, for he was ostracized on the cross as the loneliest figure in human history. Forsaken by men and forsaken by the Father in heaven, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No place for him on this earth. No place for him in heaven. So he's suspended on cross beams between heaven and earth. He knows what it is, my friends, to grieve. For at the grave of Lazarus, Jesus wept. He knows what it is to be mistreated and betrayed by his friends for Judas Iscariot sold him for 40 pieces of silver. Not only must a high priest share human weakness, and that's one of the categories in which our Lord is qualified to be our priest, but he must be divinely called and ordained, verses 4 to 6. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. Now notice in verse 1 where it says, Every high priest taken from among men is ordained. That verb, is ordained, is in the passive voice. Implying that the high priest does not appoint himself. There's no place for ambition in the office of the priesthood. And the same is true for the ministry. You know, a man says, I think I want to be a preacher so I can live a life of luxury, live in leisure, don't have to work too much. People that say that indicate they don't understand what's involved in the work of the ministry. But somebody says, I think I want to be a preacher because uh, I can be in front of people. I can be popular. People will know my name. May I say, if there's no place for ambition, it's a calling that requires humility and industry, and the attitude that I am weak in and of myself, I can't unless the Lord helps me. And it says, no man takes this honor unto himself. Now, it is an honor to serve the Lord. It's an honor to preach. I never want people to think that, uh, that it's a burden to preach. I can't think of any happier task. When the Lord blesses, I'm glad to preach when the Lord blesses. It's an honor to serve such a wonderful Savior. But my friends, it's not an honor that we should assume to ourselves. Somebody says, I think I want to be a preacher. I'm going to go to school and learn how to preach. Well, if the Lord hasn't called you, 
then you're not to seek such a position, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. You may know that from 6 AD to 41 AD, the Roman government appointed the Jewish high priests. You talk about a confusion of church and state. When the government starts placing priests into office to fill a religious role, then they have confounded that distinction between the secular and the sacred institutions. And the Roman government appointed the Jewish high priests. Of course, if a governor appoints a religious leader, you know that there, there are politics involved, right? And then from 41 to 66 AD, Herod, the Jewish apostate king, told the governor of Rome that he would take that position and he began to appoint high priests. I want to tell you, high priests are not appointed by the government or by their fellow citizens, but God calls high priests just as he called the first one, Aaron. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, and notice there are two quotes from the Psalms. Psalm 2-7, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. A psalm that speaks of the kingly office of Christ. And of course the sonship of Jesus Christ suggests his deity. He's the only begotten of the Father, which means that he's co-equal, co-essential, co-substantial with the Father. The Father's nature is shared by the Son. He's as much God as the Father is God. The word begotten does not suggest the idea that Jesus is somehow derived from the Father, as if the Father's before him and the Son it comes after him like a father would beget a child. But in connection with Jesus Christ, it speaks, my friends, of his co-essential nature. Christ did not glorify himself to be made a high priest, but God installed him in this office, saying, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee, and in another place, and here's the quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And both of these passages suggest that the kingly office and the priestly office are combined in the one person of Jesus. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. And we'll say more about him as we proceed. But the point that I make right now is for a priest to be qualified, he had to be divinely called and ordained. Do you remember the story of the rebellion of Korah in number 16? When Korah complained against Aaron and Moses and they said that you've taken too much on yourselves, we should be allowed to be priests just as well as Aaron and his sons. And God opened the earth and it swallowed the sons of Korah. You, you talk about a sinkhole. <laughs> I mean, they fell into the core of the earth and closed in on top of them as a judgment. God would not tolerate their rebellion. Then in the very next chapter, number 17, God says that every tribe should bring a rod, their tribal symbol, and lay it out before the Lord. Twelve tribes of Israel, there were twelve sticks, and Aaron's rod blossomed and budded, and it bore almond blossoms and began to bear almonds. And my beloved, what a miracle that was when a dry stick, without any root system, on its own, begins to bud and blossom and bear fruit. And God was giving the people definitive proof that he had specially selected Aaron to be the priest. You know, don't you, that Jesus Christ did not seek his own glory? 
He always sought to glorify his Father. John 7, verse 18, I glorify not myself, but the glory of him that sent me. I seek to glorify the Father. Indeed, for Christ to be qualified, he must not only share our weakness, but he must be called and appointed by God, not by men. And the Father did, in fact, send him and ordained the Son to be this high priest. Finally, a high priest is qualified by the fact that he's specially trained in the school of experience. And you see that in verses 7 through 10 where it says, Who in the days of his flesh, that is, his days on this earth, when Jesus had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and he was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And obviously the reference in these verses is to the narrative that happened in Gethsemane. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus left his disciples and he went a little further. And being in an agony, he fell on his face. The first and only time in the scriptures that it says he prayed in this posture, he fell on his face. Prostrated himself on the ground before God and he cried out, he prayed fervently to God, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. That's what he's talking about in verse 7. He had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. And he was heard in that he feared, though he were a son. He's God, a very God. The son of God from all eternity past, yet he learned obedience. And by the way, there are two ways you can learn. You can learn through verbal instruction, or you can learn through real life experience. You can gain practical knowledge. You can gain the theory through a book, but you gain the practice through real life experience. And Jesus learned. Now, as God, he didn't ever learn anything. But in his human nature, he experienced the dread and the agony of what he was about to endure on the cross. He felt that pressure in his soul while he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and my friends he prayed father if it's possible let the cup pass nevertheless not my will but thine be done may I suggest that what he's describing in this passage in Hebrews 5 speaking of Christ's prayers in Gethsemane and his learning in the school of experience what it means to obey God even though you feel the dread of it is expressed very well by the commentator Philip Edgum Hughes when he says that Gethsemane was an experience incomparable in the horror of its torment, from which his whole being shrunk instinctively, but which was inescapable if the purpose of his coming was to be achieved. May I say, my beloved, that when Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass if it's possible, he's not afraid of the physical suffering and death that was about to occur. He's not afraid of pain. We're not witnessing the collapse of his resolve as the hour of crisis nears, a trait, I dare say, that would be unworthy of the character and integrity of Christ that is displayed in the four Gospels. No, in fact, Isaiah 50 says that he said his face is a flint to Jerusalem. He would not be deterred the cross was the very reason for which he came. But he was heard in that he feared. What was the dread? 
that he faced in Gethsemane. He was not afraid of physical suffering or pain. The crown of thorns, the nails in his hands and feet, the ridicule, the spittle, the mockings, that was not what caused him to dread the cross. It was the fear of judgment. That moment when he would cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He dreaded that moment when the wrath of God due to our guilt would be poured upon him. That moment in which he would endure our hell so that we might accompany him in his heaven someday. He has been specially trained in the school of experience and he's learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And my friends, you and I also learn to be more obedient to God when we suffer, don't we? As the next verse says, in being made perfect, he became, past tense, the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey, present tense, him. You show me somebody who obeys him right now, I'll show you somebody that Jesus Christ is already the author of that person's eternal salvation. Obedience in this verse is not the cause, but the effect. It's not the reason, but it's the evidence that a person has been saved. Where you find obedience, you find that Christ is the author of that person's salvation. And how do you and I learn to obey when we suffer? Like he did, we learn obedience. David said it like this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept thy word. You might say, Brother Mike, okay, we've talked about the qualifications of Jesus to be our high priest. He shares our human frailties and weaknesses. He's divinely called and ordained, and he's been specially trained in the school of experience. But what about the fact that he was not a Levite? Legally, he was born in the wrong family to be a priest. That's where verse 10 comes in, called of God a high priest after the order, not of Aaron or Levi but of Melchizedek. Yes, he's qualified even in terms of his descent, if you please, his genealogy, that is, the order to which he belonged is legitimate, even though he didn't come from Levi, and that will be a very elaborate theme that Paul will develop in the seventh chapter, and we won't get into it today, but may I say it is thrilling. We have a sympathizing Jesus today, my friends, one who can be touched with the feelings of your infirmities. I hope that encourages you. You're not alone in this world. He's just a phone call. No, he's just a prayer away. And he will hear and he understands. He knows where you are today. He sees you. He feels you. Your Lord is the perfect high priest.
You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.